Through the course of our uh, evening sessions together, uh, Pastor Parker has been uh, tying together the theme of the conference, uh, Fostering Christian Conservatism, by helping us to see that it is in Christ and understanding his centrality in all of life that we have the Christian conservatism that the Bible teaches us regarding. Um, The first night we thought uh, in terms of the Trinity and the Trinity especially as revealed in Christ and then moved on to think about themes related to creation and who we are as mankind and then last night uh, salvation and working into uh, the church. Um, And so at this time, uh, Brother Parker, I invite you to come. Yes, amen. All right, well, tonight we are going to uh, get serious here and try to cover some good amount of territory on uh, some important topics that are, in some ways, the fruition of what we've been working toward. Uh, We've been making application all the way along, thinking about our God as he's revealed himself, but uh, hopefully drawing some more of that out together tonight so that we can live in it together, holding fast to Christ. Let me give a quick review so we don't forget some of our overarching direction that we're, we're coming from and going to here. What is conservatism? As we've been talking about here, fostering conservative Christianity, we've been focusing on this simple answer. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. So fostering conservative Christianity means being true to the reality of the gift of Christ, staying on that one way to the Father, holding fast to our head, and working that out in the full dimensions of what that means. All the full dimensions of creation, all the full dimensions of our own lives and who we were made to be, and seeing that work out through Christ's salvation. And as we got into last night here, seeing that work out in the church. Remember, we've been, we started with the rule of faith, working toward the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon. Um, and we've come to this section of the Creed, which says that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. <clears throat> Pardon me. I often think from our modern perspective that people think it's really funny or, or odd to say, I believe in the church. But hopefully, even from what we started to say last night, that began to be clearer why that is a good uh, and right perspective, a posture of our heart. Uh, And so we talked about what it means to be the church, that it's always in Christ, that it is the new creation community in Christ. It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit present in power to apply the work of Christ that brings about this thing called the church, which is his body. So let's pick up where we left off there and uh, see how far we can get tonight. If the church is always in Christ and of the Spirit, then here's an interesting question that arises. How do we actually see it? How do you know where, where's the real church, the body of Christ? I mean, this is a spiritual thing, so how does that translate into our experience? I want to answer that question to begin tonight to start our thinking, to see how central the church is to fostering conservative Christianity. I want to start by saying that the one spirit manifests the one body in local assemblies. Local assemblies. We see this throughout the New Testament, but when the New Testament speaks of particular assemblies, I want you to pay attention to something. The emphasis is not so much on locality per se or geography per se. The Apostle Paul will write, of course, to the church at Corinth or to the church at Ephesus or uh, to the churches in Galatia, right? He's writing letters to churches that are in certain geographical uh, places. But is it the geography that defines the church? I would suggest no. The emphasis is actually on actual community. 
community in act, actual community as a participation in the realm of the spirit. In that way, the local assembly shows the ultimate heavenly assembly. One man, Kale Schmidt, makes an astute observation that each local church represents the whole church so that what applies in it will apply everywhere. Should any of us here say today, well, the Apostle Paul wrote that letter to the church in Galatia, so it doesn't apply to the church at Blaine. Of course, we shouldn't reason that way, should we? <laughs> uh, well, but because each local church is a manifestation of the whole in this present created order. Here's some challenging thoughts. Each local church is not a piece of the whole church, like a piece of a puzzle, as if you could put all these local churches together and then, oh, now we've got the whole church. Uh, It's not a piece of the whole church. Neither is the local church an administrative unit of the whole church. Uh, Like, for example, around where I live, we have... um, a lot of army personnel. So, I mean, you have in the army, you have a squad, platoon, company, battalion, brigade, and so forth. These are administrative units in the organization. We shouldn't think of a local church like that either. Uh, actually, we should think the local church is the church as it is manifested in that particular place. <clears throat> Just to cite one text really quickly here, for example, the Apostle Paul, as he's talking to writing to the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, talks to them about the gifts of the Spirit and they're all baptized into one body. And then he will say in that very same passage that uh, you, you Corinthians, are the church. And because this is so, every local church embodies the reality which is the church. Every local church embodies the reality which is the church. Now, at the same time, this understanding helps us see that no particular assembly can be the assembly of God uh, without the whole body and its other manifestations. I think a local church needs to recognize itself as a real church, but not as a church irrespective of all other churches, just as no person can be a person without both unique, incommunicable individuality and a place within a community of persons. Every local church is united with Christ, her head, and with every other true church that has existed or will exist. Remember, we've confessed there is only one body, and each particular church must steward then what she possesses by the Spirit in order to make it the common possession of all the churches. And I think with this biblical perspective, we're a little bit better equipped to make use of some terms that we tend to use nowadays. They've come about in church history and they're, they're helpful terms um, such as local church, universal church, as I've already been talking tonight, or visible church and invisible church. Have you heard those kinds of terms? Um, those are perspectives that we use to try to summarize or get a handle on biblical truth, um, even though they're not inspired. Uh, now, we need to use them with skill I think lest these metaphors harden into categories that obscure our vision of the church. So historically, the invisible church meant the church as it's visible to the eyes of God alone, as God sees it. Not as we can see, but as God sees. The visible church, on the other hand, meant the church as we see it, right? We, We see visibly what's going on here. But what I want to emphasize tonight is when we say visible and invisible, we shouldn't think two different and unrelated churches. They are the same. The the visible church is simply the invisible church as it is manifested en route to her completion. Let me try to illustrate this. When you see another living person, I mean, I'm looking out here into the eyes of living persons. And... I know that there are depths to each one of you that I can't perceive with my eyes. You're living souls. There's a whole lot more to you than is just manifested uh, in, in what I can see physically. But yet when I look at you, I don't doubt that I am truly perceiving you. It would, it would seem strange if I said, well, I can't actually see you. I only see your body. Well... <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, okay. Yes, you do see my body, but that's precisely how I am manifested here, right? <clears throat> so it is with the visible and invisible aspects of the church. Jesus prayed for those who would believe on him through the apostolic proclamation that they would be united to the triune God and to one another so that the world would know whenever and wherever the Spirit brings forth faith in the crucified and risen Christ through his word, and these believers assemble in Christ's name, acting together under his lordship, you're seeing the church become visible. Now, we know the church can be more or less visible at any given time and place. I think the church is more known, more visible as she manifests the work of the Spirit, and the church can become less discernible. In fact, Christ can remove the lampstand of any given church, even if the church title and machinery stay in place. So we need to understand this deep interconnection here, and that comes about into these next couple terms as well, universal and local. And I'm, and I'm going to have to pick on some things here that I think, uh, well, I would challenge <clears throat> Baptists to be aware of some areas I think there are weaknesses. The universal church, I believe, has often been misconstrued to mean simply all believers for all time or all believers in the world today. Some people think of it in that way. <clears throat> but it, the point is that the universal church is conceived of as individuals apart from any actual entity which transcends them as individuals. It's just simply them as individuals related to Jesus, but not related to some, something else. And I think that misses the point. I'm not going to take time to give examples of that here right now. <clears throat> um, but I think we have a, a tendency in our modern age to read the biblical text through this kind of a grid. And I think that produces a kind of a distortion in our thinking. We tend to ask this. I'm reading the Bible and I read about the church. It says something about the church. And so I ask in my modern mind, Hmm, is this passage talking about the local church or the universal church? Which one is it? But I think that tends to make them into a kind of either-or division as if they were not compatible with one another. In fact, the Bible doesn't think that way, I would argue, and tends to slide between the two because they're ultimately all referring to the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> if this is so, and I'm not going to take a long time on this here today, I would suggest, and this is important for fostering conservative Christianity, that every local church ought to consider itself as a representative of the entire body of Christ, and it ought to act accordingly. What it does in its corporate worship, for example, has ramifications for all churches. What it does in its practice of the ordinances has ramifications for all churches, and it can never not do that. The decisions that a church makes in church discipline create obligations for all churches. The doctrine that a church proclaims, the way of life it practices, are going to build up the entire body of Christ, or they're going to work against the body of Christ. <clears throat> Just to give one hint at this, the Apostle Paul rightly appealed to the practice of all the churches in order to buttress his instructions for the Corinthian church. <clears throat> uh, we need to learn to think of ourselves as that intrinsically connected. Yes, Blaine Baptist Church is a real church, you might say, in its own right. It is because it is a manifestation of the work of Christ applied by the Spirit, bringing about his body here. And so uh, it is a real church and it can act like one. At the same exact time, Blaine Baptist is intrinsically connected in Christ to all churches, all true churches. You are one in Christ. And it's right here, I think, I need to warn Baptists of some non-Trinitarian, non-Christological and thus, I think, non-conservative type thinking that penetrated American Baptist thought, especially coming flowering in the 19th century. 
And by the way, sometimes because it was in the 19th century, uh, contemporary people look back at it like it was conservative as, because it was a long time ago. Um, and the influential 19th century Baptist leader, Francis Wayland, is going to be our example here. I would argue he expressed some thinking that is more of the spirit of the age than the spirit of Christ when he laid out the principles undergirding the doctrine of the independence of the churches. He first asserted that religion is a matter which concerns exclusively the relations of an individual man and his maker. Religion is a matter which concerns exclusively the relations of an individual man and his maker. And then he goes on, in the New Testament, God has given what he calls a perfect rule of duty, which every individual must understand for himself. Um, in fact, he'll say every individual is obligated to live by his own understanding of the New Testament, quote, though it be in opposition to every created authority, unquote. So on this basis, he wrote, <clears throat> men who by such an examination of the New Testament arrive at the same conclusions respecting its requirements unite together in churches for the sake of promoting holiness in each other and subduing the world to obedience to Christ. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's easy to see here that Wayland thought the church was based, the real existence of the church in an in, in actual community was based primarily upon man's individual choice. And thus, there's really no union deeper than our individual choices. As long as I agree with you and you and you, then we're united. If I don't agree with you and you and you, then we're not united. It's my choice. It's what I think that matters ultimately, though any or every created authority say otherwise. (laughs) I think this springs from Wayland's fundamentally incorrect presupposition. He said... Religion is a matter which concerns exclusively the relations of an individual man and his maker. Folks, I would argue that religion is not the private domain of an autonomous, unrelated, state of nature kind of individual because no such kind of creature exists. That's why we've taken some time to lay out our Trinitarian thinking even as it relates to mankind. Uh... Now, it's not surprising that with that kind of an assumption, he ended up with a voluntaristic view of the church or a man-based view of the church. There really is nothing greater in the local church holding us together than simply our opinions. Let me give one other example just to uh, show how this has worked out a little bit in our own histories. Here's another influential Baptist from the turn of the 20th century, E.Y. Mullins, uh, was from quite a few years, uh, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He wrote a book called Axioms of Religion, published in 1908. And in fact, I'm not going to read the whole quote here, (laughs) but I'm going to just cut to the chase. Religion, Mullins thought, is a personal matter between the soul and God. End of story. Uh, And I would argue that that is a an error in thinking and then it spawns misconceptions about the nature of our relationship in the church and what it even means to foster conservative Christianity. Just to illustrate this a little bit uh, so we can help think about this. If we say something like religion is a personal matter between the soul and God, um, well, there's a sense in which that could be true, but let me compare it to another scenario. If I were to say marriage is a personal matter, well, yes, marriage is very personal, uh, deeply personal, but does that mean that I can therefore say nobody else has anything to say about it? I can make it what I want it to be because marriage is a personal matter and you can't define it for me. You can't tell me what it is. We would say, well, no, actually, that's not. Marriage is very personal, intensely personal, one of the most personal things we experience on earth, and yet it is also public. And it is also inherently connected with the whole of society. And you can't just change it because you think it's different, right? So when we say religion is personal, well, that's true. 
but we misunderstand what that means. I think to the extent that Mullins is representative of Baptist thinking in this era, we can see that Baptists were not reasoning from a Trinitarian Christological basis. And in that way, conceiving themselves to be vanguard of freedom in the modern world, they were instead devolving into conformity to the modern world. They were thinking of authority and freedom as contraries, which is not true biblically. For example, to go back to, um, well, something I skipped in the quote uh, that Mullins talks about here. I would argue nowhere does the Bible teach a purported right of private interpretation. On the contrary, it teaches a responsibility of personal interpretation. You are responsible before God for what this book says. Every single one of you is responsible before God for what this book says. And you better take that seriously, by the way. You can't just hear this or read this and then go on your way like, oh, I don't have to do anything about that. You are responsible, right? A responsibility of personal interpretation, but which necessarily entails a community of interpretation. For although persons are unique and unrepeatable instances of a rational nature, persons do not exist outside of a community of persons. We know that from thinking Trinitarianly. Baptists have struggled to break out of this modernist mold. <clears throat> in effect here tonight, I'm trying to destroy this individualistic outlook on our relationship to Christ. Now, there are times in history when we might need to destroy a communalistic outlook on our relationship to Christ, but that's not our problem. Again, it's like I mentioned last night, it's always easy to critique somebody else's problems, right? Uh, see their temptations, their problems. Well, this is our problem today. So trying to have a quote, relationship with Jesus, unquote, without the church, which so many professing believers think is totally normal today. It's like trying to sever Jesus's head from his body. You're a decapitator. If you want to have Jesus, but you don't think you need the body, it simply doesn't work that way. You try that for very long, you will die. We need to get this thinking that these this is inherently connected. There's intrinsic relationship of the church to Christ and our relationship to Christ. Now, we've asked that question then, how does this, we, do we see the church? As the Spirit brings about the work of Christ in this world, we said it's manifested in local assemblies, just like we have here. This is a wonderful gift from God, a manifestation of the Spirit's work, by the way. I believe Jesus looks on this and sees uh, the satisfaction of his soul for what he died to accomplish. This is wonderful to see this come about. But even within, let's, let's press a little beyond. Okay, so we have local assemblies. How do we know about them that are uh, the true church? I believe as the church fulfills her calling, certain marks become evident. So just as where there's smoke, there's fire, so to speak, where we see these marks, we can recognize the work of the Spirit forming the body of Christ. Now, an older name for these marks, uh, to summarize them, was word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. Sometimes Baptists, we get a little little nervous about that word sacrament because we don't want it to imply certain things that that people uh, might attach to that or think about that. I don't think the word itself is is wrong in, in any sense. Um, but that would be a way of summarizing what the Spirit brings about when the work of Christ is applied. So let's talk about these briefly here tonight because I think it will help us to flesh out fostering conservative Christianity, the ministry of the Word. And I'm going to be brief on this because I know you folks have a, uh, a faithful, loving pastor who preaches the Word of God to you. Um, so you, I know you believe this, but let me just touch on it. Just before he ascended to the Father, Christ reiterated, you will be my witnesses. Witness is the work of the church. This involves teaching men everywhere that everything that Jesus commanded us. That's exactly what the apostles in the early church did, um, as recorded in the book of Acts. Paul instructed Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And so Paul would later charge Timothy, preach the word. Uh, the great 20th century preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones asserted the primary task of the church and the Christian minister is the preaching of the word of God. 
Uh, to quote another Baptist, John Broadus, he wrote, Preaching is characteristic of Christianity. No other religion has ever made the regular and frequent assembling of groups of people to hear religious instruction and exhortation an integral part of divine worship. The true preaching and teaching of the word of God is an indispensable mark of the church. Uh, <clears throat> without this, the church ceases to be the church. If she's not proclaiming the word of Christ, then she's not the work of Christ. Right? This is what we're here for. The preaching and teaching of the church has to be biblical. We proclaim the true gospel. No matter what the world thinks, we tell the world who God is in Christ. We tell who Christ is truly and what he has done. We tell the true story of the world. It's through the word of Christ that God produces faith, Romans 10 tells us. So just as the Father sent Christ proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, so we proclaim to all the world today, Jesus Christ is Lord. The witness of the church is crucial. Now, I don't think there's any controversy about that here. And I'm assuming you all believe that, although we could preach on that for a long time. But we're going to move on here then, right? <laughs> to baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ordinances of the church. Because these two... I'm going to argue here are central to fostering conservative Christianity and that we invest in practicing these well by faith that we are holding fast to Christ rightly. Let's talk just a little bit about baptism here. It's the ceremony which enacts our initiation into union with Christ in which the church immerses a person in the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, now, don't let that name, uh, that word ceremony trip you up. I think as a public, corporate, symbolic action entrusted by Christ to his church, baptism is properly called a rite or a ceremony. And there's nothing wrong with using that terminology. Again, sometimes we've got this dichotomy going in our minds, like I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that doesn't include rituals. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus said. <laughs> so a baptism is a ritual. Right? And there's nothing wrong with calling it that. Uh, it's recognizing what it is. Um, <clears throat> after his resurrection, Jesus gave his disciples their marching orders as he sent them to accomplish his mission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just right here, even in this crucial text, we see that baptism is an indispensable aspect of the mission of Christ. Baptism is inherent in making disciples. Did you see that in the text? Make disciples. How does he describe that? What, what goes on in that? You baptize them and you teach them everything that Christ has commanded. That's inherent to making disciples. Just like swearing in is inherent to making public officials or making vows is inherent in getting married. Um, you cannot omit baptism and still make disciples. It can't be done. This is further reinforced by Christ's instruction that baptism ought to be administered into the name of the triune God. We're coming full soccer again here, keeping in, in mind our Trinitarian reality. Into the name of, just a standard phrase expressing fellowship with, allegiance to someone, a commitment, a relationship established between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit on the one hand and the one being baptized on the other. And of course, in that context, the relationship of a disciple, a disciple to his master. Um, by the way, we should also note the Great Commission is, the command is given to the apostles as representatives of the church. The apostles didn't live to the end of the age, but the church built on the foundation of the apostles does, right? Um, it's a church ordinance, so on the basis of his authority as the risen Lord, Christ told his disciples to baptize those who are being made into disciples. And following on the heels of that observation, here's another one. Namely, that those who would become disciples submit to baptism. They don't baptize themselves. In other words, baptism is an action which is done to you. <clears throat> uh, go through the book of Acts, just for a quick illustration. Baptism is always in the passive. It's applied to people. You receive baptism. You don't do it to yourself. 
And therefore, baptism cannot be reduced to only the expression of what is in a person's heart. Like marriage in civil society, baptism has a public meaning and involves three agents, God, the triune God, the church, and the one being baptized. And so on the basis of what God says about baptism, I'd like to submit three truths regarding baptism that I believe really are crucial for fostering uh, conservative Christianity. And we'll talk about practicing this here for a minute. First, baptism is God's act toward us just as much as it is our response toward God. I think baptism is shortchanged if we forget that God applies baptism to us via his authorized agents, the church. It's not merely a human action. At the same time, of course, we never forget that baptism instantiates man's response of faith and repentance toward God. It is, like Acts 22.16 will say, calling on the name of the Lord. Or as 1 Peter 3.21 will say, it's appealing to God for a good conscience. It's receiving our identity in Christ. Also, baptism is a necessary component of fulfilling the Great Commission. Without baptism, we can't make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, baptism is necessary to building the church of Jesus Christ. Without baptism, think about this, we don't have a church. If you don't have baptism, you don't have the church. They go together. So how do we practice baptism to foster conservative Christianity? First of all, baptism must be administered by the church, which of course means to say by particular churches uh, as they represent the church. Each local assembly, which is a true church, is an expression of the body of Christ at that time and place, and no other person or institution is authorized by Christ to administer baptism. Baptism should not be administered by grandpa in the backyard pool or by Joe Counselor at the local camp. I think to do so risks making baptism a merely human act that God has not authorized On the one hand, on the other hand, it fails to unite the one baptized with any real expression of the body of Christ. So contrary to how this is commonly understood today, I'm suggesting in order to foster conservative Christianity, we need to say baptism must be administered by the church. Second, baptism ought to be administered to believers as the capstone of conversion. Now, I mentioned baptism clearly ought to be administered to believers. Baptism is always connected in the New Testament with faith. But, which might be more controversial in our day, I urge that baptism should be administered as a capstone of conversion. Um, And I think this can be actually a test case for whether our experience or our theology will drive our practice. Out of fear of false conversions, some earnest and godly pastors advocate delaying baptism until a professing believer has had time to show fruits of conversion. But I believe that's a mistake. I believe that misconstrues both the theology and the example of baptism that we have in the New Testament. Uh, some, Some would ask a question like, the paramount question becomes, is this person a publicly demonstrable believer? But I would argue that in the New Testament, baptism is the public demonstration that one is a believer. Uh, That's how the name of Christ is put on you. That's how you're recognized as a believer. Somewhat strangely, I believe, proponents of this position that we ought to wait, uh, put off baptism indefinitely until they show fruits of conversion... um, You never hear proponents of this position argue that someone ought not to call upon the name of the Lord until he's demonstrably a believer because we recognize that calling on the name of the Lord is the expression of faith, right? That's what you do when you believe. You call on the name of the Lord. So it is with baptism. When you believe, you are baptized. The person becomes a publicly demonstrable believer through baptism, Pardon me. This is why, by the way, in in the New Testament, there is no such creature as an unbaptized believer or an unbaptized Christian. You can't find it in the New Testament, right? But we've created this odd category 
And by doing it, I think we've failed to foster a proper understanding of life in Christ, how we hold fast to Christ and what this looks like in the body. Uh, So you need to be careful out of fear of maybe false professions or things like that, of replacing God's revelation with man's wisdom when we separate what is always together in Scripture, conversion and baptism. I think we don't need to be afraid to apply it like God said. And because of that very thing, I think baptism ought to be the entry point into church membership. Baptism is the entry point into church membership. Uh, It's not so much, sometimes Baptists will use this language, it's not so much a prerequisite for church membership as it is incorporating into church membership. We are baptized into Christ. Obviously, in the life in this world, there may be highly unusual situations in, one, in which one may be baptized, but not immediately added to the membership of a local church due to providential hindrance or things of that nature. But that's not theologically normative. Uh, Christ baptizes people into the realm of the Spirit so that they will be members of his body, and that body is expressed in particular assemblies. And we shouldn't pull that apart. We need to keep that together. And we need to teach people that. In fact, when you call people to follow Christ, they should know that if I'm going to say yes to Christ, if I'm going to follow Christ, what does that mean? That means I'm committing to being baptized into the name of Christ and being a member of his church. That's exactly how it worked on the day of Pentecost, and that's exactly how it's supposed to work from here on out, right? Now, because of that, baptism also needs to be practiced with careful, watchful, loving church discipline. You see, without church discipline, baptism will degenerate. Rather than being afraid to baptize people, let's wait a long time to baptize people, what we should actually do is be the church. Bring them into the body, but be what it means to help one another as a body, and that includes discipline. That's how we we deal with this. Uh, I think the proper practice of church discipline is what will enable us to keep baptism, conversion, and church membership together without being afraid, oh no, we're, we're getting a bunch of unbelievers into the church. Okay? Baptism is very central to fostering conservative Christianity. Let me talk a minute about the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to have to move quickly here tonight. Once again, you're welcome to ask questions. Uh, don't feel like because I'm, I'm trying to push to get a lot done that you can't ask any questions. If you need to, go right ahead. The Lord's Supper is a ceremony which enacts our participation in union with Christ, in which the church shares table fellowship with God in bread and wine, representing Christ's body and blood. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It is in the doing, the eating and the drinking that the Lord's death and all it entails is proclaimed. The supper is publicly and corporately acting out our remembrance of Christ. Uh, I'm going to skip some of this about the, uh, the Lord's Supper, although uh, hopefully you will understand it uh, as we go on here, but I'm going to skip to a little uh, some on the passages in 1 Corinthians. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, makes clear that the Lord's Supper entails a real participation in Christ. And this real participation is precisely what precludes participation in idol feasts. Remember the passage? Are you tracking with me here? Um, the Apostle Paul argues, you can't partake of idol feasts and the cup of the Lord. That's totally incompatible. You're not, you can't do both. Don't try to do that. Now, that to me shows us this is more than a mental exercise going on here when we take the supper. If it were merely a mental exercise, then participating in idol feasts would be inconsequential. The Corinthians were convinced that an idol has no real existence, right? So why not participate in idol feasts? They needed to realize that the idol feast involved real participation with demons, whether they intended to even worship or not. There was objective idol worship going on in those feasts, and that is completely incompatible with the worship of the Lord. Similarly, there is objective participation with Christ going on in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34 demonstrates that the supper is a remembrance and proclamation of the death of Christ and it is fellowship of his people in the unity of his body. Because we participate with Christ, we also participate with all who are united to Christ. The supper is an inherently social act. It's done by the body. Think of this clear contrast. In 1 Corinthians 5, believers must break fellowship with flagrant sinners In 1 Corinthians 11, they must receive one another in the way they partake of the supper. 
So once again, the Lord's Supper is a dividing line between believers and unbelievers, between those who are living according to the gospel and those who are not. If these things I've just suggested are true, how do we practice the Lord's Supper to foster conservative Christianity? First, the Lord's Supper ought to be administered by the church, which is, of course, to say by particular churches. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, the passage just been citing says, when you come together as a church, right? This is what's going on here. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper makes it inappropriate to practice privately. The proper practice of the Supper makes it impossible to share apart from a church context. Second, the Lord's Supper ought to be administered frequently. I didn't take time to go through uh, the book of Acts or some other passages here, but everything we know about the pattern of the early church suggests that the Lord's Supper was a regular and at least weekly practice. I think this should create in our minds a disposition toward frequent and regular participation in the Lord's Supper. And I think this predisposition is strengthened into an intense desire and delight when we combine this primitive pattern, church pattern, with the powerful meaning of the Lord's Supper. If the Supper is truly participation in Christ or feeding on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, like the Second Linden Baptist Confession says, and an invitation to commune with him by faith, then what believer would not want to do this when we meet together on the first day of the week? Let me pause to give just a little bit of personal testimony here. This is something our church started, not in the beginning when we started, but has begun to practice a weekly communion. And uh, I know this is for your church to work on, but I would commend that practice to you as a church, um, as a very biblical practice and also a very spiritually edifying and good practice that drives all the right things we want to uh, get as a church. So we can talk about that more later, but I commend that to you. Third, the Lord's Supper ought to be practiced joyfully in love. Too often we think of it as a somber event. Now it should be sober, but it should be a joyful participation in Christ. In fact, I would even argue this. For all of those in new covenant relation with Christ, which the Lord's Supper shows, even those believers who feel the guilt of their sin should not abstain from the Supper. They ought to come humbly and gratefully to the Supper because it symbolizes their true forgiveness of sins. It symbolizes that they are welcomed by Christ in his church. I think it's very sad to say, see how many have stayed away from the very right which God commands us to partake because they feel unworthy. That totally distorts the gospel meaning of the ordinance and it robs the believer of a wonderful reaffirmation of the Lord's love and forgiveness. Um, I fear that some churches practice the Lord's Supper in a dark manner because they misunderstand that it's not a time of introspection, uh, <clears throat> but a holy rejoicing. By the grace of God, it's a foretaste of the feast of the kingdom. So I always, I've, I have people actually not infrequently ask me when a problem has surfaced in their life <laughs> and we're having to deal with that. Should I come to the Lord's Supper? I actually had that question just to me about three weeks ago. Should I come to the Lord's Supper? And my answer to that is, yes. Repent of your sin and come to the Lord's Supper, <laughs> right? Christ wants you to come. Don't go stay away and hide in your own little corner. Christ says, come. Now, fourth, the Lord's Supper ought to be practiced along with faithful and loving church discipline. The Supper is a functional line of demarcation between those who are in the church and those who are outside the church. I don't know how you practice that exactly in your church, but often in churches like this, there will be a kind of what's called a fencing of the table, a a public statement that says if you're member here or something like that or you're in Christ you're welcome to the table for those who are not believers um, not baptized into Christ then you um, should not come and last the Lord's Supper ought to be what I call close communion in other words it should be for baptized church members the only people who are welcome to the supper are those in union with Christ <clears throat> Uh, Since those who are unbaptized, not church members, cannot be publicly recognized as united to Christ, I think any church which admits them to the supper is tearing down the spiritual meaning of the ordinance and training people wrongly in the gospel. Um, 
and we could talk about that for a long time here tonight. <clears throat> uh, I think, but I, I just want to argue that is a a crucial practice. So let me jump to the end here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not incidental to the mission of Christ. If we would say we want to foster conservative Christianity, we want to mark out this path. And we've been thinking along with these uh, early believers as they worked out, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is the outworking of the Spirit applying the work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> then you know it's got to be practiced and practiced well. And that's the church. And what is central to the church? We said it earlier as word and sacrament or the proclamation of the word and baptism in the Lord's Supper, right? These ordinances that Christ has given to us. Um, There's some other things I want to say about that, but I want to just come to a good stopping point here tonight by saying this. I would urge you uh, here at Blaine, other churches, to have great confidence in word and sacrament ministry practice in the love and power of the Holy Spirit. Have great confidence in that. And don't start looking to invent different ways to be the church. We've got to have something new and improved. We've got to have something better. Maybe the temptation, you know, if there are small churches, well, people don't even pay attention to us because we don't have the latest, greatest fad that, I don't know the churches around here, such and such a church has down the road, you know. (laughs) Um, So boy, we better get with the times and start having what everybody else has. I'm not saying all things churches do are wrong. We're just saying, where's your confidence? What's the central thing? What do we need to focus on and and cultivate well if we want to foster conservative Christianity? Word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. You want to raise up a generation here, and I so love having these children with us here in these meetings. You want to raise up a generation here at Blaine Baptist that knows the Lord and knows how to hold fast to him and walk faithfully in his ways, you need to show them the centrality of the church and the proclamation of the word and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those should become life-defining things for all of you. Uh, Far more than, say, your physical birthdays or things like that. What the church does together, this is the outworking of Christ. And I just encourage you tonight, and I need to close here for time's sake, to have confidence in what Christ has really designed the church to be, and you will actually foster the right understanding in disciples of what it means to hold fast to Christ. Let me conclude there for tonight. Questions? Thoughts? Yes, John. Um, I, I missed something you said a minute ago. You said that not limiting the Lord's Supper to baptized church members pulls apart something. And I missed what that something was. Um, I, have, I don't know exact my exact words, but it's yes, basically... You, to the union with Christ. Yes, it pulls apart our, our union with Christ, our unity in Christ, uh, what it means to be the body of Christ, the church. Um, I think... Uh, if you don't practice baptism and the Lord's Supper well, you really do destroy the church. Um, I skipped over a whole section here on the effects of open communion. Uh, are you familiar with that? That's actually what a lot of churches do today. Open communion basically means if you think you're, you know, you come to church and you want to come to the table, well, it's not our job to say who gets to come or not. You just, you just get to come. And uh, <clears throat> that that basically makes the church functionally um, unnecessary. Just it, it dissolves what it means to be a church at that point when you start doing that kind of a thing. And definitely disconnects what I've been arguing here tonight needs to be together. Our relationship with Christ, is the church is intrinsic to that. It's not extrinsic. Um, this is one of my real burdens, even where I minister back home. So many people have this idea, I have this, I have my relationship with Jesus, my personal relationship with Jesus over here. The church is over here and it's a nice thing if you want to go to it, you know, if you feel like joining it or whatever, if it helps you out, kind of like a, you know, buying a membership in a fitness club or something. If you, if you want to do that, great, that helps you. But if you don't, that's fine. I still have my personal relationship with Jesus. And I'm basically arguing that's not true. You can't say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus and then reject the body of Jesus. 
it doesn't work that way. Not in the way God set this up to work. Not in the way that leads us to truly know him. That's a pervasive way of thinking in our day. And if we're going to foster conservative Christianity, we need to build these foundations well and work in the other direction. Good. Yes, sir. Yeah, on the uh, Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. doesn't it say something like to examine yourself? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some sickly and sleeping amongst you. Mm-hmm. And they received it without confessing. Unworthily, it says. It's all like every yeah. <laughs> yeah, a great question. Because, um, yes, I, I think the point of the Apostle Paul's admonition there is not to say don't come, it's to say change. <laughs> you know, repent, change, quit doing things the wrong way and come. You know, now, and he's giving a serious warning about uh, recognizing the body. And by the way, this too helps to show us the, the deep connection between the body of Christ and Christ. The way you treat the body is the way you're treating Christ. And what were the Corinthians doing when they were coming to the table? They weren't regarding the body. And the very way they were practicing it actually fractured the body. Um, And that's why he even went on to tell them, this is not the Lord's Supper you're taking. (laughs) You're calling it that. But the way you're doing it, this isn't the Lord's Supper. That that was a really serious rebuke um, to them. So... Uh, yes, we can practice this in a way that actually destroys the whole meaning of the Lord's Supper. And and that has very serious consequences. And he's warning them, just like he's warning us, don't do that. Um, so, but it's, but I'm, I'm, I'm drawing it into this whole body context instead of just an individualistic context. It's not just, oh, did I have some secret sin that I haven't thought of? And so maybe I better not take, I don't know. Um, that's not really what the Apostle Paul is talking about at all. So hopefully that clarifies a little bit of... Uh, so, John, yes. Is it fair to summarize what you're, you've just been saying as sin should bar us, but guilt over sin should not? Is that fair? Um, <clears throat> I, I see your point. I, I would probably put it more as um, unrepentant sin okay, will, will lead us away from the table. And, of course, that kind of a thing can even eventuate in church discipline, where the church bars you from the table, (laughs) excommunicates, and says, no, we can't partake together because we can't recognize you as a a believer. Um, So I think, and that's another good thing I think about frequent communion, is it's always bringing us back to this foundation in our own lives, in our relationship with Christ, in union with him, we need to be prepared pressing after him, pursuing after him, coming in faith, hope, and love. Um, yes, coming humbly. And and yes, if, if there's sin in our lives, the Lord's Supper, pardon me, should make us see how incompatible that is, and we should be wanting to confess that and wanting to make that right. But in that very realm, then, it should be a great um, balm to those who come with guilty consciences to say Christ says this is my body which is for you and this is my blood which is for you come because I'm the savior right you need Christ come to him and I think the church should revolve around that and that's another reason why I like having the Lord's Supper as in our church every week um, and uh, and it's a very good thing always drawing us back to Christ so, yes, sir. So one thing that I think about sometimes is uh, trying to make these things simple for especially like young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one thing I thought of as you were uh, explaining about baptism and the Lord's Supper and how you hold fast to the old paths in these particular ways, it seems as though maybe a simplification to help even young people understand is that you can't say I'm a faithful follower of the paths that, that Christ has ordained and at the same time reject the particular instructions that he's given mm-hmm. um, as it regards to the Lord's Supper or Bethlehem. Sure. Any thoughts there? Sure. Um, no, I think that could be a, a good way to explain it. Um, yeah, just uh, I like to emphasize 
that it's a, a gift from Christ to us to participate with him. Uh, and so don't reject his gifts. Welcome them. This is good. You know, Christ is giving himself to us here and, uh, and we can enjoy it. By the way, I know I keep circling back to this, but one of the things I've loved about our frequent participation in the Lord's Supper as a church body is what a, uh, a bearing witness opportunity it is for our children. Because every week they see that. And what do kids want to do? <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I have that? You know, hey, can I, what's going on here? Um, and that is like opening the door wide for parents to say, well, this is what this means. Here's who Jesus is. This is what he's done. We want you to follow Jesus too, right? And, uh, and just it's such an open door for the gospel all the time. Um, and so another neat, very enacted uh, lesson for us in our churches. And by the way, adults need that just as much as kids. <laughs> we need that enacted lesson for us too. Good. Uh, any other questions? Yes, sir. Okay, if you would need to answer this tomorrow because of time. <laughs> Everybody doesn't seem to be falling asleep yet, so. <laughs> in, the, in the numerous imperatives that Christ gives to the church, the Great Commission being one of them, you have several imperatives given there. Up to mm-hmm. one is baptism. Mm-hmm. Why is baptism and the Lord's Supper all ordinances, and what is an ordinance? And mm. why aren't all the other imperatives, even included <laughs> in the Great Commission, not ordinances? Why do we take out baptism? There's a a great question, which is probably way bigger than we can talk about exactly here tonight. (laughs) Um, But I would actually suggest, and here's a a thought for you folks, and just that can be learning and discussing together. But um, one of the reasons why I don't think the term ordinance is necessarily better than sacrament, neither one of those is biblical terminology per se, uh, in what we're calling these, but the term ordinance doesn't really say what's different about these two things, does it? I mean, what you just point out, there are all kinds of ordinances. Why do we call those two ordinances and not other things? And, um, and so it, it has a tendency then to not say any, there's anything particularly distinct about these kinds of things. Uh, so I say it to say uh, I'm not wedded to the term ordinance uh, as a, as a biblical term, and we probably could come up with a better term uh, to show that, um, you know, even even in, in our discussions, our teaching, or, or that kind of thing. Um, obviously, I'm sure many of you know, part of the reason for moving away from a term like sacrament was because of, say, how it's become used in Roman Catholic history or things like that, and so we... We don't want to communicate some of those ideas, so we try to use a different term. Um, as long as we're getting, uh, and I think this is the the crucial thing about baptism and the Lord's Supper being church-defining practices, um, that's why they're kind of a distinct sort of thing than just any other command. Um, you know, should I read my Bible? Well, yes, I should read my Bible. Um, but in and of itself, that's not marking out a community of believers, of followers of Christ. It's not putting their name on him and, and distinguishing them from anybody else kind of a thing. Uh, so that would be a really short answer to a, a good question. That All right. Well, thank you for your wonderful attention again tonight. It's been a blessing. So Pastor Nathan. Mm-hmm. I won't add further things other than to say, if you wait a little bit, there'll be some snacks out there. Uh, Enjoy fellowship together uh, second to last evening. For those of you who've been here uh, most of the nights, I commend you. You're you're sticking to the... So uh, not not that being here is is the be-all and end-all of anything, but uh, I'm glad to fellowship around the word and in worship together. Uh, Let us close our time together this evening in prayer.
Let's look together to our God. Lord, thank you for Christ. And thank you for how he, as the head of the church, has drawn us into the church and given instruction for how the church should live. I pray that we would be faithful in continuing to uh, seek faithfulness in how we think about um, our life as a church. I pray you would bless each one here and the various churches that they represent. Use them in faithfulness to your son to be a great witness to their community of who Christ is and what it is to be faithful to Christ. We pray that you might strengthen us in following him even as we go forth in his name. Amen.